Hello, my rebels. Today, I take you through Ontario's new math curriculum. I'm very excited about it because there's not a lot of math in it, which is good for people who aren't good at math. But it's not good for people who are good at math. And uh, I think there's a little bit of weird anti-math racism going on. If you wonder what the heck that could do with anything, well, I'll tell you, I'll show you, I'll quote from the curriculum itself. You're not going to want to miss this, but let me encourage you to get the video version of this podcast because I literally take you line by line through the curriculum. And I don't think you're going to believe me if you just hear me read it on a podcast. I want you to see with your eyes the curriculum from which I read. We got some crazy math is racist thing going on in Ontario. I want to show it to you. Um, To get the video version, just become a subscriber to what we call Rebel News Plus. It's the video version of these podcasts. You get my daily show plus weekly shows from Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, and Andrew Chapados. And uh, by the way, that eight bucks a month, that helps keep Rebel News strong and independent. Just go to rebelnews.com and click subscribe. Thanks. Tonight, Ontario has decided that math is racist, so like spelling, geography, and history, they're pretty much taking it out of classes. It's July 12th, and this is the Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Hey, can I show you something? This is Canada's national team in the Math Olympics. That's a thing. Smart kids. Thomas Guo from Markham. Michael Lee from Toronto. Eric Shen from Toronto. Zi Xiang Zhou from London, Ontario. David Tang from Toronto. And Edgar Wang from Westmount, Quebec. Here's a team that was specifically for girls to encourage young women to go into math. This is their team. It's more diverse. Anna Krokine, and then Elaine Liu, Jennifer Wang, and Emily Zhou. Now, I've checked other years for this same team. The demographics are about the same. Can I say it? It's mainly Chinese kids. I mean, that's just a fact. Why? I have some theories, none of which are racist. A lot of these kids come from immigrant families who take a very keen interest in their kids' education, who came to Canada for opportunity, and they're not going to let their kids just slough it off. No gender studies or vegetarian studies for their kids. No just playing video games and smoking pot all day. Study, 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 make the family proud. It's that immigrant mentality. I think that's part of it. I think another part that's related is if you immigrate to Canada, maybe your English isn't so strong. It's not your first language. So perhaps math is something that you can excel at no matter what your native tongue is. And a related answer, I think this is important, is math is not subjective. You either know the answer to a math question or you don't. There's no wiggle room. There's no favoritism. It's a pure meritocracy. Other things in life aren't. It's about who you know, not what you know. Does anyone believe that Justin Trudeau would be our prime minister now if he didn't have the luck of being Pierre Trudeau's son? Math doesn't work that way. You know it or you don't. So those are three theories 
as to why Canada's math teams are overwhelmingly Asian. Frankly, I'll tell you that out of ethnic pride, I had hoped to see a Jew on the, one of those teams, but I guess it wasn't to be. This does cause some policy issues in places that care about race-based outcomes. One of the most racist places in the world these days are universities. So whether this is nurture or nature, it's happening. Asian kids are great at math and science. So if you're a school that insists on checking people's race and having racial proportions in the name of affirmative action or whatever you're doing, whatever you're calling it now, you're going to have to discriminate against Asians. It happens like crazy in elite schools. California is the worst. They explicitly penalize Asian kids. They make them have to have much higher test scores to get into school. You know, they used to do that to Jews too, even here in Canada. About 70 years ago or so, they limited the number of Jewish kids who were admitted to, for example, McGill for the law school and the med school. Now they're doing that to Asians. My point is math isn't just not racist. Math is anti-racist. Math, math is where you can go for a refuge from racism. Because math doesn't care if you're black or white or Asian or Jewish or Gentile or whatever. It is a meritocracy. So imagine saying that math is racist. Well, if that idea is new to you, you haven't been paying attention. Focusing on the correct answer in maths is Racist, that's from the Times of London. That's the theory. It's not just some crackpot pundit who's saying that. It's part of a massive program, bankrolled in part by Bill Gates, of course, to racialize math instruction. Here's how the Times Union describes it. They say, objectivity is particularly toxic, and practices that perpetuate and reinforce objectivity must be dismantled. Focusing on the right answer can lead to underdeveloped reasoning skills and a failure to grasp the complexities of math. Consistent with this, perfectionism is to be dismantled, as it also places too much value on getting it right. The notion that new learning comes from the teacher is a paternalistic, power-hoarding method to perpetuate white supremacy. That's a pretty good summary of it. They're criticizing it, but that's a great way to sum up this new math business. Now, let's stop for a moment to remind you why math is important. Not for everyone, I acknowledge. I mean, if most people don't know math, the worst that's going to happen is, I don't know, they don't know how to live within a budget or how to do their taxes or they don't know how to count their change or they get bamboozled by some payment plan or don't understand their credit card interest, for example. But if you're trying to be excellent in math, like those math Olympians, who are not even that great, but just really good, so maybe you can get a certain job in engineering or architecture or something. If you get it wrong, you could have a high-rise fall down or a bridge fall down. In fact, that's the story behind the iron ring that engineers wear. It's allegedly made from the steel of a bridge that fell down because of bad math. It's like an airline pilot or a brain surgeon. You want the best person, no matter if they're male or female or whatever their race. Please don't mess around with those things, okay? Which brings me to the atrocious government of Ontario. We already know. They don't care about schools. I think they're the last jurisdiction in North America to still ban children from going to schools in person using the pandemic as the excuse. Seriously, they're on Zoom calls all day. No, no schools, no kids sports. And it's not even certain that'll end this September. Kids who have the lowest mortality rate for this virus are being punished by the lockdown itself in Ontario. And the biggest children's hospital in Ontario 
says it's causing an epidemic of depression and suicide, but the Ontario Conservative government doesn't give a damn. So really what I'm talking about should not come as a surprise to you. They don't really care about school to begin with. But here is the Ontario math curriculum for grade nine. You know you're in trouble when the word algebra appears just once, but the phrase human rights appears five times. I counted. Human rights, equity, and inclusive education in mathematics research indicates that there are groups of students, for example, indigenous students, black students, students experiencing homelessness, students living in poverty, students with LGBTQ plus identities, students with special education needs and disabilities who continue to experience systematic barriers to accessing high level instruction in and support with learning mathematics. Let me just stop for a moment. Are they saying, are they saying that gay people are bad at math? Where did that come from? And why are we even talking about this? Why are we defining entire racial and demographic groups as victims and saying they can't learn? What are we doing? This is math, people. Students bring abundant cultural knowledges, experiences, and competencies into mathematical learning. Okay, what's that got to do with algebra? Or the Pythagorean theorem or long division or fractions? In mathematics classrooms, teachers also provide opportunities for cross-curricular learning and for teaching about human rights to create anti-racist, anti-discriminatory learning environments. All educators must be committed to equity and inclusion and to upholding and promoting the human rights of every learner. Hey, hey, hey guys, sorry to interrupt. I, I think I might have found our problem here. I think I might have found out why all these victim groups are doing so poorly in math. I think it's because we're not teaching them math. Challenging Eurocentric ideas about learning mathematics is key to a CRRP approach, that's cross-cultural or something, something, in an anti-racist and anti-discriminatory environment. Teachers know that there is more than one way to develop a solution and students are exposed to multiple ways of knowing and encouraged to explore multiple ways of finding answers. I'm going to send all those Chinese kids a stern letter for them to stop using Eurocentric ideas about math. Put aside all the BS language for a moment. This is where it gets real. Look at this. An equitable mathematics curriculum recognizes that mathematics can be subjective. Mathematics is often positioned as an objective and pure discipline. However, the content and the context in which it is taught the mathematicians who are celebrated, and the importance that is placed upon mathematics by society are subjective. Mathematics has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledges. And a decolonial anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes visible its historical roots and social constructions. The Ontario Grade 9 Mathematics Curriculum emphasizes the need to recognize and challenge systems of power and privilege, both inside and outside the classroom, in order to eliminate system systemic barriers and to serve students belonging to groups that have been historically disadvantaged and underserved in mathematics education. But they said math is subjective. That is not correct. Two plus two is not five. There's no wiggle room. I don't know why they're doing this. One answer, for real, is anti-Asian anti racism. Stop the kids who keep getting the right answers from winning all the time. I really think there's a lot of anti-Asian racism involved. 
Another reason is it's easier for the teachers. It's easier to teach this political BS than to teach calculus. That's tough. It's easier to mark and give out grades. You just hand out marks based on feelings, not on achievement. Hey, can you do me a favor? If any graduate from this curriculum wants to design a bridge or a high-rise, can you stop them? Stay with us for more. exciting, very encouraging, very inspiring. If you heard, they were saying Libertad, which is Spanish for liberty. I don't know if you saw there was an American flag there. Those are protesters in the prison island of Cuba doing something that is illegal in Cuba. They're speaking against the communist regime. I love to see those people, but I'm terrified for them because I fear that they may face a fate that others who have protested have found on Cuba, imprisonment or even death. It reminds me in some way of the protests in Hong Kong, which were suppressed, or God forbid, the protests in Tiananmen Square. Um, this is the first time in memory there have been mass protests in the streets against the Castro regime. It's a, a remarkable moment, and the Biden White House chose to mark it by downplaying it. Let me read to you a tweet by a very minor official, which in itself says something. Julie Chung is the acting assistant secretary for the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. You couldn't get any lower on the totem pole than that. And she says, peaceful protests are growing in Cuba as the Cuban people exercise their right to peaceful assembly to express concern about rising COVID cases and deaths and medicine shortages. We commend the numerous efforts of the Cuban people mobilizing donations to help neighbors in need. Do they have the right to peaceful assembly in Cuba? Was this really, they were mad against COVID cases? The New York Times followed, Jen, sorry, followed Julia Chung's lead. They say those protesters were protesting against not any person or dictatorship, they were denouncing misery, hoping that misery would perhaps hear their chants and see their placards and that misery would decide that it was wrong. What a ridiculous approach to freedom protests. Joining us now via Skype from California is our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, I don't think they were protesting a lack of vaccines, although they, they may want them. I don't think they were protesting against someone called Mr. Misery. Um, but holy cow, was that quite some response by the New York Times and the Biden White House, wasn't it? Well, let me give them a little bit more credit. The rest of the article in the Times is clear that the protests were against the communist regime. So while the headline tried to spin it in a way that was about general economic malaise, frustration with coronavirus, which is after all something all of us feel. The article itself made it clear that activists believe this is the most significant outpouring of popular outrage 
since 1959 when Fidel Castro led the revolution. So the article itself was better. Often with these mainstream media outlets, these establishment outlets, you find that the headline is terrible and the truth is buried somewhere inside the article. So you have to read five or six paragraphs down, but they eventually get to the point. This is an anti-communist protest. Mm -hmm. As for the Biden administration, the official that you mentioned, I don't know if it's entirely her fault that her tweet was so weak, but yes, her message was abysmally poor as people are marching in their thousands against a communist regime to tell the world that you empathize with their concern over COVID death cases or whatever. It's like saying that the protest in Cuba is very much like the outrage of Democrats in America against President Donald Trump during the coronavirus. It's an extension of the Biden campaign message, and it's an attempt to circumvent any kind of discussion about Obama's policy in Cuba, which Biden supported, of normalizing relations with the regime. So they tried to paint it as some kind of a health protest. Now, I don't know that it necessarily helps the left to paint it as a health protest. We've been told for decades that the great achievement of Cuban communism was its healthcare system, that Cuba was so successful in healthcare that the Cuban regime was able to export doctors, who it turned out were working essentially as slaves for the regime abroad. But nevertheless, Cuban healthcare was held up as the example. So for the left to resort as a last-ditch argument to the idea that the protests are about healthcare doesn't really help their long-term cause of propping up the Cuban communist regime. But the fact is that the protests were against communism. They weren't about COVID cases. And I think the Biden White House went some way toward repairing some of the damage by issuing a much more strongly worded statement, the, you know, the, the stereotypical strongly worded statement <laughs> on Monday. Now, it doesn't really mean they're going to do anything. And I think if Biden fails to take this opportunity, it will be a real error because this is a chance to oust the regime. The Castros essentially are gone, but communism remains. It's kind of an empty hulk. And the people of Cuba are showing us that they're brave enough to take on the regime. This is a moment of immense weakness for Cuban communism. And once you deal with Cuba, you can enable freedom in Venezuela. You can do so many other things. This, this is an amazing moment. I hope the Biden administration will seize it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, put aside the partisan uh, questions. I mean, I think it's awful, like you say, it undermines the Democrats' message. I think it strengthens Republicans in Florida, where there's a lot of refugees from Cuba and Venezuela. And I, and I think the Republicans picked up a lot of support uh, from them. That's why that state, I think, went red. Uh, but you're right. This isn't just about Democrats or Republicans. This is about a prison island that I, I know Canadians like to go there for cheap vacations, but it is like a prisoner's island where they have some pretty beaches so Canadians get cheap vacations instead of going to Hawaii or, or Mexico. And wouldn't that be amazing to end and, and just talk about a country that if it was liberated, all the Cuban Americans who have made it big would go and fix up their homeland uh, and, and pour wealth in it, not, not through some government Marshall Plan, but like that country could thrive again. You're right, this is a wonderful moment. Now, I, I agree with you that uh, Biden did undo some of the damage today. Joe, let me play you two clips. The first is from uh, Jen Psaki, who just can't let go of this COVID line. Here's a little exchange from the White House press gallery. Uh, you're talking today about how some of these protests are inspired by people exhausted with the government. 
Why is it that yesterday the State Department was saying that this was all happening uh, out of concern about rising COVID cases? Well, I would say first that the protests were just happening yesterday. We're still assessing uh, what is motivating and, of course, and driving all of the individuals who came to the streets. But we know that when I, we say exhaustion, the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the manner by which the people of Cuba are governed, that can cover a range of issues, whether it's uh, economic suppression, media suppression, lack of uh, access to health and medical supplies, including vaccines. There are a range of reasons and, and voices we're hearing from people on the ground who are protesting. So when these protesters are yelling freedom and enough, there are people within the administration who think they're saying freedom from rising COVID cases. Again, I would say that when people are out there in the streets protesting and complaining about the lack of access to uh, economic uh, prosperity, to the medical supplies they need, to a life they deserve to live, uh, that can take on a range of meetings. There's a global pandemic right now. Most people in that country don't have access to vaccines. That certainly is something we'd love to help with. Go ahead. I, yeah, I just think that's uh, tone deaf. Joel, let me play one more clip for you uh, from Joe Biden, and I'm going to bring you back in, Joel. So here's Joe Biden who I think is marginally better. Take a listen. Folks, I want to start by recognizing the remarkable protests that are taking place in Cuba. The Cuban people demanding their freedom from an authoritarian regime. And I don't think we've seen anything like this protest uh, in a long, long time, if, if quite frankly, ever. Um, and the United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba as they assert their universal rights. And we call on the government, government of Cuba, to refrain from violence and their attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. So I was just taking some notes there, Joel. He, uh, Joe Biden called Cuba an authoritarian regime and called on the government to refrain from violence or silencing the voices. That's getting firmer. And he wasn't talking about COVID vaccines there. So I, I, I say that All was right. an improvement over 48 yep. hours ago. So three things that you can learn from just those two video clips. One is that Joe Biden has long had a more hawkish personal view on Cuba than the Obama administration would allow. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden claimed that he had been tough on Castro. That was not true as regards his behavior during the Obama administration. It was true with regard to his behavior in the Senate. When Joe Biden was a senator, he had a much tougher policy on Cuba. He then shelved that policy as he was part of the Obama administration, stood right by Barack Obama during the normalization of relations with the Cuban regime. And Jill Biden even went to soccer matches and so forth with Cuba. So they were part of this normalization. Now you're seeing Joe Biden revert to his prior policy, but that's one part of this. The other part is that Joe Biden doesn't work on Sundays. It's really interesting how much less activity there is at the White House on Saturday and Sunday. And I think part of the problem here is that they just could not raise the guy on Sunday to make any kind of a statement. They had this junior official roll out some boilerplate about COVID cases because Joe Biden is not like Donald Trump. Joe Biden does not react to things in the moment. He's not on board fully 24 seven. He is doing whatever he needs to do to store up energy for the week, but he's not always at the helm. So that's another reason you saw a response that was very lackluster initially from the administration. And the third thing is you see Jen Psaki trying to square those two different kinds of statements. On the one hand, about COVID cases on Sunday and then on Monday talking about freedom and the right to protest and so forth. 
And what she says, if you watch the whole briefing, is that President Biden's constantly being briefed about this or that. She's constantly at pains to reassure the reporters that Biden is being told about everything. Her language implies that he's not really running most things. Hmm. And I'm not making a statement necessarily about his mental capacity and that, that kind of thing. But I do think the Biden administration is run by committee, that there are people at a senior level, many of whom are veterans from the Obama administration, like Pisaki, like Susan Rice, people from the Clinton administration, both Clinton administrations, uh, Clinton administration that would have been if Hillary had won, and of course, uh, Bill Clinton's administration. I, I think people are, are sitting around and they bat these, these issues around. And I do think there's a reluctance among some of the people in the room to acknowledge that Obama's outreach to Cuba was a failure. The demonstrators in the street are telling the world that the regime itself is the problem. That flies in the face of Obama's assumption. Obama went along with the idea that it was the American embargo that was the problem. It was the American uh, resistance to the communist regime that caused poverty. And there are a lot of Democrats, not left-wing crazies, but real solid party members for whom Cuba is always a little romantic spot in their imaginations. They want to preserve the idea that socialism can work in some place, maybe if you have nice weather, let's say, not like Russia or something. And they want to hold on to the idea that it's only because of American intransigence that Cuba has suffered and failed. This is the reason that Pisaki is dancing around when you see Peter Ducey of Fox News ask her those very direct questions. She's trying to square the two different statements Sunday to Monday, but she's also trying to represent a very divided group that is making the key decisions in the Biden administration. Hmm. Very interesting. And you're so right. I mean, we're used to Donald Trump. Um, you know, he would play a few rounds of golf uh, throughout the year. But other than that, I don't think he ever took a vacation. Um, he would... No, never vacations. Like, no. He just didn't. And... Even when he was at playing golf, it was either, you know, play a game of golf, but then he was working out of Mar-a-Lago or whatever. And you know he was writing his own tweets. I think we all know that. So he, and, and those never stopped. And, those, and you could even see when he got up and went to bed uh, because, you know, that's when the tweets stopped or started again. The guy was never off. He was never low energy. I mean, he invented that phrase, high energy, low energy. He, he called his critics low energy. Joe Biden is snooze button. Like, you're, you're right. He just, I think you're exactly right. I think they didn't know what to say on the weekend. They knew they had to say something. And so they rolled out the lowest key person they could just to avoid. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think you can be the president of the United States of America in these crazy times and, and work a 35-hour work week. Yeah, Donald Trump would combine his leisure activities with his work, so he never really took a vacation. He'd play around to golf and go right back to work. He doesn't seem to need much sleep either. But one thing is certain, he was absolutely clear about the need for freedom in Cuba and Iran and other places. Another thing that's also interesting that a lot of Americans are noticing is that the Cubans are marching with the American flag, as are demonstrators in Hong Kong and demonstrators in Iran when they can. And it's interesting that the American flag is still the freedom symbol for people who are oppressed around the world. Our own elite doesn't seem to think so. You know, our, our, some of our Olympic athletes don't want to stand for the anthem, and some of our highly paid professional athletes want to kneel when they fly the flag at a football game. But the people who really care about freedom still believe in the American flag. It's very interesting. 
Yeah, I think it was the New York Times just the other day saying uh, the New York, the American flag is now a divisive symbol. They had this whole story about how only sort of uh, hicks and hillbillies fly it, but uh, I don't think those are hicks and hillbillies in Havana or Hong Kong or other places <laughs> no, like not. that. Um, you know, you just said something, and I've just been thinking about it, that um, Jen Psaki is going to lengths to assure reporters that Biden's being briefed on things. I don't think anyone had to reassure people that Trump was being briefed. Trump would grill people. Trump would have a command of certain, not on every issue. I mean, it's the same way with our former prime minister, Stephen Harper. You felt that he had total command of the file, at least of those things that really he, that he really cared about. Like, it was so clear that Trump was intimately involved in any foreign affairs negotiation, whether it was the USMCA trade deal or with the North Korean deal um, or, or with NATO. Like, Trump, you know, was he briefed? Yeah, but he could give the briefing. So you wouldn't have to have had a spokesman saying, hey, guys, I just want to let you know, we really did brief Donald Trump on this really well today. Like, he, people would say, why are you telling us that? The fact that Jen Psaki has to reassure people is, in fact, the strongest proof that it's not happening. I don't know. I just, I'm just worried about it. And you're right. There's a hollowness. Let me ask you one last question. I put this to, to our viewers the other day. Um, I think that Kamala Harris would like Joe Biden to retire before the end of his term so that she can try on the clothes of president, both to head off a serious challenge in the Democratic presidential primary and also so she could go into the general election saying, no, I am a president. I've actually done it. Uh, so you don't have to try hard to imagine it. You, you've seen it. Do you th how about that tension in the White House? I know some pundits say there's ten tension between Team Harris and Team Biden. Do you think that's just gossip or do you think it's real? I don't think the tension is between Team Harris and Team Biden. I think it's between Team Harris and the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party wants Kamala Harris to know that she works for them, that they're the ones who put her in power. It's not even Joe Biden. She was selected to add to the ticket, but she ran a terrible campaign. She was on a road to political oblivion. She is supposed to do what the party tells her to do. What's interesting is that the Joe Biden administration has given Kamala Harris the most unenviable and unaccomplishable tasks in the administration, like securing the border, for example, or dealing with the border when they don't enforce the border laws. She is not allowed to succeed. She's been given assignments in which she can only fail. And that's interesting. That's not necessarily a Biden decision. Initially, I think the approach to her was to give her no particular portfolio. So she looked like she could trained for the job in general. She could attend every meeting, look over his shoulder. She looked more like a president in waiting. But then she got this border job. She started getting other jobs as well, which are very specific and particular and which cannot be done well. They just can't. So it looks to me like someone in the Democratic Party or in that Politburo, for lack of a better term, that's running the administration, somebody decided she was getting too big for her britches. And they have decided to undermine her by giving her assignments that make her look bad. She knows she's getting the, the worst assignments. Now you're seeing leaks to the press that her staff are unhappy. I think Kamala Harris would, would love Joe Biden to step down because it is the only way that she will gain some leverage in this situation. I don't know that she's a shoe in for 2024, even if she is the president running for re-election or for election, I guess, since she won't have been elected at the first term. But uh, it, it depends on what happens in these midterms. I think if the Biden administration loses 
one or both houses of Congress, I think that not even Kamala Harris is going to be able to save the party. And there will be a primary challenge. They'll look for another stronger candidate. Very interesting. Well, Joel, it's great to catch up with you. Thank you for joining us, as you always do. And uh, you covered uh, the, the Democrats so well in the last presidential primary. I can, I can hardly wait to see you cover uh, this administration in the months and years ahead. Take care of yourself. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Joel Pollack, Senior Editor at Large of Breitbart.com. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back. Your letters. Alfonso writes, the vaccines are experimental and for emergency use only. The long-term consequences and side effects are yet to be determined. Why would you need a booster of the unknown? Yeah, I mean, I, I just really think that if this was any other lobby group, any other billion-dollar industry, um, we would be very skeptical. We would be grilling these executives. We're cheering for billionaire oligarchs now who aren't, I mean, listen, billionaires are billionaires. Some of them give us something of great value. This is being forced on us. They're billionaires because this is mandatory. Where's the skepticism? Paul writes, huge victory for Redeemer. Great to see. You're talking about that Redeemer, Redeemer University. You're right. It was great to see. I was quite surprised because the courts are not friendly to Christian institutions. And not only to give them a win, but to give them six figures in legal expenses I've never heard of that before, but you heard the crazy news there that even though they won in court, they're still being given the runaround by the government. They're getting their summer jobs funding six months after the summer's over. It's just ridiculous. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.